0: We're in Mark chapter 12. Do you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. How we doing? Blast. blast. We got a blast. We got a woo-hoo. <laughs> like it. All right, we're in Mark chapter 12 tonight. Like I said, good to be with you. Open up your Bibles, verse 28 is where we're going to start. Tonight, we actually are going to go through the end of the chapter And then we're also going to do all of chapter 13. Yeah, I know. Say wow. Say miracle. Because it's going to take a miracle. You guys know how it goes with me. But we can do it. We can do it. I know Tristan prayed over us, but uh, just going to pray again. Father, we pray that you would bless and uh, fulfill the promise of the anointing of this time together as we have in our hands the holy word of God, we pray it would fly like an arrow to our hearts and bring that transformation and change. We desperately need, God, that our lights would burn brightly in the midst of great darkness so that people would be drawn to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The, the word for us tonight is, is real. The word is real. And what we're going to see tonight is Jesus is Finishing his teaching on the Temple Mount is that he really does, uh, and I know sometimes it's easy for us as we read these different stories, we kind of compartmentalize them as stories, and rightfully so because there's just so much that's contained in each one of these stories. But um, as we've been seeing in the study of these chapters as a whole, there is a there is a, a theme uh, that threads its way through each of the chapters, like an overall Arching an overarching theme that ties all of the stories together. Uh, and remember, we we've been with him the last time that we were together, we were with Jesus on the Temple Mount, and he was instructing and teaching. This was, you remember, the Tuesday of the Passion Week. And um, as I had mentioned to you, symbolically, emblematically, there was this whole picture that was divinely being worked out uh, during the Passion Week through the life of Christ. If you were a Jew, of course, you were celebrating the Feast of Passover and there, there were all of these um, rituals instituted by God that you would have been going through and they were fundamentally fulfilled in the person of Christ and everything that he did on these particular days was it was it was emblematically tied to and prophetically tied to that initial Passover celebration that the Jews instituted under the guidance of God, uh, recorded in Exodus chapter twelve. And so, as he's on the Temple Mount, remember, um, he was in a way being as the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. He was being inspected. He was being tested. He was being tried. Uh, to see if there was some fault within him, um, and throughout this week it was it was proven it was it was shown whether it was through the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to undermine him and trip him up, or whether it was through um, being as we 'll see later before the high priest and the sanhedrin and being accused and mocked and spit upon and tried in a religious sense and and because they couldn't find anything against him, they had to get people to give false testimony. Or whether it was standing before, Pilate himself who had tried many criminals and he himself said, I find no fault in this man. Um, this is really where we're at on this Tuesday. That, that this is the Lamb of God, that, that perfect, spotless Lamb without blemish. Uh, and we're right in the middle of this um, scene on the Temple Mount, like I said, where he's being tested and, and he's being tried. And what's going to happen in uh, this particular story is we're going to see Jesus reveal those who were real worshipers on the Temple Mount. And you know, that's what he wants. He wants real worshipers. There was, uh, within the institution of, of Judaism, a, a falsehood, a falseness in insincerity, a lack of authenticity, um, a lack of real worship because people were being directed to man instead of being directed to God. And so, you know, in this moment, he is going to cut through all of that institutional religious nonsense. By the way, that didn't just happen 2,000 years ago in Judaism on the Temple Mount. It still does happen today. That there can be. I'm not saying that organized or um, institutional Christianity is 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 wrong, because there is order. There, God is a God of order. When you look at Paul and the institution of um, the local church, there was order in the local church. But, but when that order becomes idolatry. That's really what the issue is. When the order becomes idolatry, when man is worshipped instead of God being worshipped, then you have a problem. The institution has gone sideways, Uh, and it's in those moments that, that God will pull his people, he'll pull his remnant back to real worship, uh, and, and that's what we're going to see tonight I know I'm going to get there in just a second, but this is the setup for you. We're going to see tonight that uh, we're talking about real love. We're going to see tonight that we're going to be talking about uh, real worship. We're going to be talking about real authenticity. And then in chapter 13, we're going to talk about reality, or we're going to be talking about real future. So So check this out, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. So scribes, by the way, were doctors of the law. Um, they weren't just professionals at taking a scroll and then transferring, you know, what was written on one scroll to another scroll. These were the learned men of Judaism. These were the doctors of the law. They knew the law, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. And so there, one of the scribes is, is listening, and he sees that Jesus answered well, and so he says this, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, the Shema Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, excuse me, there is no other commandment greater than these. Of course, You know, as far as commandments go, when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is broken into two sections. The first section dealing with humanity's relationship with God. The second section dealing with humanity's relationship with one another. And he consolidates that into two commandments. The first one is love God with everything that you have, your whole being, Right? You're not, you've, not compartmentalized your, you've not compartmentalized your worship of God or your love of God. He doesn't just get a part or a portion. It's not like you love all these different things and God happens to be one of the many things that you love. No, there is a supremacy of love that you have for God. And it's all-encompassing, right? This is, this is really what he means when he says all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, every facet of your being... Your body, your soul, your emotions, your spirit, they are all centered around the adoration and the reverence, the exaltation of God. That is, first and foremost, and let me tell you something tonight, maybe there's some confusion in your life, maybe there's some struggle in your life, maybe you're battling sin, you say, give me a silver bullet, pastor, like, what's the answer? That's the answer right there. That's the answer right there. Because you know what? If you love God like that, it'll handle every issue in your life. You know, you got problems at home. Yeah, that's right. You can, you can affirm that. Amen. Even on a Thursday night. Let's hear it. Yeah. You know, like Tristan was praying, he is the healer. And, and, you know, God obviously touched her heart to be praying for families and for loneliness and and tonight what is the silver bullet? Well, well, put him at the center and pour your whole heart into him and you you'll discover that every issue in life is solved by that. And then, you know, the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. How much do you love yourself? Hey. <clears throat> well, <laughs> I mean, well, because because you know, you feed yourself and you clothe yourself and most of you clean yourself and and you you know you you, 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 you think of yourself typically before you think of other people, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like you, you're, we are good at taking care of ourselves. And, and he says, just as you do that, you should give that same love and affection and care for others too. In fact, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he says that based off of calling Christians to esteem others better than themselves, right? Calling Christians. Christians to esteem others better than themselves. The truth is, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we put ourselves first and everybody else next. And the example of Christ is, we live sacrificially, self-sacrificially for the sake of others. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. Hey, I like this guy. You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one. We're talking about God. He is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt... Offerings and sacrifices. Man, listen, there's a spiritual epiphany that's happening in this guy's life that is so relevant for us today. Before I mention what that is, notice how he responds. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So, so the guy answers and, like, he's getting it, right? The light is starting to go on. By the way, sometimes the spiritual light going on for us is progressive. Sometimes it happens over the course of time. It, it's not, it, you know, our journey with God isn't always like, you know, we were living in darkness and then, boom, all of a sudden we, we were walking in light. You know, typically what happens is over the course of time, God is, God is ministering to our souls. God is drawing us to himself. God is convicting us of our sins. God is giving us revelation progressively. Sometimes the progressive aspect isn't in what he gives, it's in how we receive. I'm saying all of that to you to remind you that the people that you're ministering to, be patient with them. Be patient with them. Because you know, probably you had just like just like I did, you you had people ministering to you over the course of time, and aren't you thankful that after the first you know gospel bomb that that person dropped on you and you resisted, that they didn't just walk away and say, you know what, you're just you're just too tough, you know, there's no hope for you. Uh, Why am I wasting my time? No, someone was patient, someone was willing to stick it out, someone was willing to endure. With the nonsense of your resistance and still love you with the love of God, knowing that over the course of time, God was reaching your heart. I'm just saying, don't give up too quickly on people, right? This guy, he's getting it. And what is he getting? He's understanding that while all of this religious ritualism was happening on top of the Temple Mount, it all meant nothing unless people were really loving God. That's, that's what's going on here. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not about how many offerings I can bring or how often I can get on top of the Temple Mount. It's not about how many mikvah washings I can go through to cleanse myself ritually. It is about loving God because the truth is this. I could offer a thousand lambs, but if, my, if, my, if love is for God is not in my heart, it means Nothing. So, I mean, let's just like put that in in modern terms. I could go to church a thousand times. I could sing a million worship songs. I could give all of my money to the poor, but if I have not love, it, what did Paul say? It profits me nothing. The the ritualisms in, in Christianity are meaningful if they're founded in love within our hearts for God. And without that, obviously, they don't mean anything. So, number one tonight He's just cutting through all of the institutional religious nonsense. Number one is real love. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, declared this, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, my Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David prophetically is speaking of Messiah. Remember we talked last week about how Messiah was the son of David. He was going to sit on an eternal throne, Messiah would, that God would give to him, but he would be of the lineage. He would be the son of David, even though generations removed. And yet Yahweh says here, speaking to Christ, He calls him Adonai, and and remember, from the Jewish perspective, the father is always greater than the son, and yet prophetically, David is calling his future son Adonai, which is simply to say that God was saying that Messiah would be even greater than David. And he says, well, how does that work? David himself, verse 37 in this psalm, David himself calls him Lord, so how... Is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This piece here is just reminding us that real worship is focused and centered on Jesus Christ. Real worship is focused and centered on Jesus Christ. David's son, the Messiah, was not just going to be one within the lineage of David, he was going to be greater. He was going to be the only begotten, and he was the only begotten son of God, the King of Kings. And the Lord of lords, the one who would sit on an eternal throne and reign forever. Real worship means worshiping the Son. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. So they, they love it. They love the attention. They love, they, you know, if these guys had social media, they would have been on their social media all the time, and they would have been posting about themselves. Hey, check this out. I had this pita and this hummus for lunch today. <laughs> you know, little selfie. How cool am I? You know, you wish you were like me. That's kind of how it rolled for the Pharisees. But they loved it. They loved to be well-respected. They loved to, to be honored. They loved to be the ones who were looked up to. Um, they loved the idea that there was this chasm between themselves and the ordinary person, and that the ordinary person looked at them and thought, man, I could never be like that. I could never be like that. I could never be that righteous. I could never be that holy. There's no way. And, you know, where if, if I, as I say that, you are thinking, man, that's, that's a... That would be a a horrible thing to think that you've created this situation where you've presented yourself as so superior, no one one could ever get to your level. You would never want that because you're humble and you've been touched by the grace of God. And, And you know if God can work in your life, he can work in anybody's life. You know that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and, and there is no distinction between us. Hey, we may have different skin color, and we may have different genders, and we may have different socioeconomic backgrounds, and we may have different experiences in life, but the fact is this, we're all sinners in need of salvation, and there's only one way to be saved, and we all come to God through the same means. And that's through trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. Which means there's no difference between us. Which means that, that you're as close to God as I am because of Jesus. And I'm as close to God as you are because of Jesus. You're like, wait a minute, Pastor, you've dedicated your life. And Pastor Brandon's dedicated his life. And Tristan's dedicated her life. And no, we're all sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. It's not of works lest any one of us should boast. And so next time you think, hey, I'm going to get Pastor Derek to pray for me because he's closer to God, you come to me and I'm going to ask you to pray for me because I need your prayers, all right? So, uh, so they have all of this pretense and this, this perception that's being laid out, and yet, verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation, right? There was a lack of real authenticity, and not only that, but they were using their, their religious, they were using their religiosity and their religious position to victimize people who were at risk and people who were in need. And, you know, it's like, man, it happens today. You, you're watching television and, you know, some bozo comes on and he's like, I've wept and cried over this handkerchief and, and if you send me 50 bucks, I'm going to mail you my, my wept on snot rag and you can put it under your pillow. And as you, you know, rub it up against your face, God will fill your wallet and you'll never be poor. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know. You know, you know I'm telling the truth. They may not like be framed like that. They may say a little nicer, but there's some poor widow out there That's like struggling, right? She's struggling. She's like, okay, do I go get celery and oatmeal and maybe a little brown sugar? Or do I send my $50 into this really nice man who cares for me and I'm going to be able to get his, his, you know, cried on hanky and maybe maybe God will protect me. And so she sends her 50 bucks and I'm telling you, there is going to be a day of reckoning. There is going to be a day of reckoning. God help us to never take advantage of those who are in need. Verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow. By the way, another gospel account tells us that when they were putting the, their money in the rich people, they were like making a big deal out of it, trying to get as many people to watch as possible, making you know, a big issue with their you know, coins that they're throwing in. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, so obviously not much. And he called his disciples, not much to the people that were there on the Temple Mount, but a lot to her. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. And so the final, the final piece here is real giving. Real giving. Um, you know, he, he cuts through this perception, this idea that, you know, it was really the wealthy people who were giving out of, you know, they were giving out of their abundance. And so, you know, they had a lot of resources and they were giving a portion of their resources, but their giving really meant no sacrifice, it didn't hurt. You know, David said this, you know, in essence, he said, I am not going to offer something that doesn't cost me. I'm not going to offer something that doesn't cost me. It's easy when the abundance comes in to give to God off of the top in a way where we're insulated from any pain. It's much more difficult when times are tough and the Spirit of God is touching our hearts to take a step of faith and trust Him in our giving. To say, you know what, God, you are speaking to me. You are leading me and directing me. There is is inflation. It is $6 per gallon. It is five bucks for my eggs. My 401k is shrinking day by day. Mortgage rates are going up. Like, the list is long. I just stressed some of you out big time. (laughs) Big time. But then the spirit of God comes along, right? The spirit of God comes along and, and he's like, take this step of faith. Take this step of faith. And you're like, and maybe it's something, maybe it's something simple, you know, like, hey, this, this person on this street corner, $10. Give him $10. And you think, well, what's $10? $10 that costs you as an act of worship to God is meaningful in the eyes of God. It matters to God. And by the way, that's all that matters. It only matters that it matters to God. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks doesn't matter what anybody else's impression or opinion is on what you do or what you give. In fact, it's nobody's business. It's God's business. And when you are touched by the Spirit of God and your giving is between you and the Holy Spirit, but when, when the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart and says, hey, that $5, or that $500, or that $5,000, or that $50,000, right? Whatever it may be. This, I'm stirring you to invest in the kingdom here. When you take that step of faith, and you say, you know what, God? You know this is gonna hurt. You know that this is going to cost, but I trust you. I'm gonna give this cheerfully to you as an act of worship, because I know that no matter what I do, you will always be faithful to me. You will always come through. And as you do that, it pleases the heart of the Father. He takes notice. Let me just wrap up by saying this. No one cared about this widow. No one cared about her. Like, she was insignificant when Jesus said in another gospel account, he says, did you see that? And his disciples were like, what, you know? As he's pointing, he's, hey, that's just a widow. You know, she doesn't have any value because widows had no value. She doesn't have any value, but he took notice. He's like, did you see that? I saw it. God, God saw it. You know, all of the seemingly insignificant things you think you've done for God, you may be really surprised one day when you stand before him. And he says, that thing that you did that you thought was nothing, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me. I have a feeling heaven's going to be like that. We have this idea of all these people that are going to have all these big crowns, and I just have a feeling it is going to be the reverse of what we think. Chapter 13, verse 1, so let me just, let me read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to give you a little heads up on how this chapter is going to go. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, this is such a human thing to say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Did I read the rest of verse 43? I did, Okay. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. One more verse. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. And then I'll I'll share with you the, the questions, the two questions that are recorded in Mark's gospel account. So he wraps up his time on the Temple Mount um, by the way, this, th- these are the final words. This is the last time that he would be on the Temple Mount until his second coming. So, I mean, this is really significant. The next time he's going to be on the Temple Mount is when he is going to he's going to go to Edom. He's going to rescue the Jews that have been there for three and a half years. He's going to go to the Valley of Jezreel, where all the armies of the world are gathered together. He's going to vanquish them with a sword that comes out of his mouth. That is his word, a simple word. He's going to go to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he's going to do triumphal entry 2.0, you know, in, in not, not, not in humility, but in power and glory, Mount of Olives is going to split in two. There's going to be a mass of water that pours forth, one going west towards the Mediterranean, the other going east down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will not be the Dead Sea anymore. It will be teeming with life. He is going to descend the Mount of Olives. He's going to go through the eastern gate, even though the Muslims have built a cemetery in front of the eastern gate intentionally to keep the Messiah from going through the eastern gate. They thought, hey, we got an idea. We know what the prophecy says. How about we put a cemetery in front of the eastern gate so that Messiah can't defile himself by walking through the cemetery to go through the eastern gate? But the thing is this, there's going to be a resurrection. And so he'll raise the bodies, he'll walk through the gate, and then he'll go on top of the temple mount. Go on top of the Temple Mount, and then there will be the judgment of nations. That's, that, that is the time gap between this last moment and the second coming. Um, so he comes off of the Temple Mount. As he's leaving the temple, the disciples, of course, remember, uh, the temple was uh, the second temple. First temple was built by Solomon the second temple was built by Zerubbabel, but it was modified by Herod. Herod spent 42 years modifying the temple that was standing during the days of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, it was something to behold. 42 year project. The temple walls um, that held up the ground so that there was a temple mount were some, some of them were 46 feet long, 10 feet wide and 10 feet high, some of them weighing 700 tons apiece, and they were cut so perfectly that they did not need mortar to set them into place. In fact, if you go with me and march to Israel, we will stand at the temple mount, we'll stand at the western wall, and Davidson Center, we will see some of these stones that are hundreds, uh, that, that they weigh hundreds of tons. And you can't even take a knife and put them between the two jo- joints of the stones. They're so perfectly quarried. Well, that's just the temple mount. The temple itself was handcrafted. It was all marble. Uh, it was covered in gold. They said that when the sun was rising, the shine off of the temple caused the temple to gleam for Hundreds of miles. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to behold. And as they're walking out, the, the disciples, I mean, it's such a human thing to say, right? Oh, look at these, look at look at these buildings, look how beautiful they are, look at how permanent the system of Judaism is. We have a tendency oftentimes to look at the human things that man has made. And focus on them instead of the glorious living things that God has made. We find ourselves sometimes putting our trust and faith in the wrong thing. And as they're making this declaration and statement, Jesus totally blows their mind. And he says, hey, you see these great buildings? Everything sitting here on the Temple Mount? There's not going to be one stone left upon another. It's going to be laid desolate. Everything that you, in that statement, are putting your hope and trust and faith in right, every false thing that you are banking on to kind of preserve this old system that's been established, it is all going to be wiped out. It is all temporary. And it was 37 years later that Titus came through northern Israel because there was a rebellion that was happening in in Judah, in Judea. And so Titus came through, the Roman general, with three legions of soldiers, and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and you know Titus himself said, listen, you guys need to give up, because if you don't give up, we're wiping everything out, including your, your temple, and the Jewish people were resistant to it. There were 1.1 million people living in Jerusalem at the time. And so he laid siege, he cut down all of the trees from the Mount of Olives, it's called the Mount of Olives because it was covered with olive trees. He cuts them all down to use as part of the siege of the city, and as the soldiers ultimately get into the city, uh, they're on top of the Temple Mount, torches uh, are putting things on fire, there's an errant arrow That is dipped in pitch, lit on fire, that goes into the temple. Remember, the temple walls are covered with gold. The temple catches on fire. The gold melts. It goes in between the joints of the stones that it was made of. And as the city was laid waste, the soldiers wanting to get to the gold tore the stones of the temple down so they could scrape the melted gold off of the stones, and they literally, this is a fulfillment to the detail of what Jesus said, they literally took the stones and, of the temple and they pushed them off the temple mount. If you go with me to Israel in March, right there on the southern wall, the southwestern corner of the temple mount, we will stand next to stones that were pushed off of the temple mount that were part of the temple edifice uh, some 2,000 years ago. So every single word That Jesus said was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, this was mind-blowing for these Jews, these Jewish men, because they thought that the temple would be, uh, you know, a structure that would last forever. And so they have all of these thoughts in their mind. And you know what? They're probably still plagued by the words that Jesus said when he was coming down the Mount of Olives at the triumphal entry. Remember, he said to Jerusalem, man, how often I wanted to gather you to myself as a hen gathers her her chicks, but you would not. And so he said on that Sunday, on the way down, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there was this statement that he had made, that their house would be left desolate, and it had been ringing in their ears, no doubt. They didn't understand what it meant until... Two days later, he says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone on top of another. And so as they go up to the Mount of Olives, he sits down. Peter, James, John, and Andrew come privately, and they're like, listen, we need you to explain this to us. Tell us, verse four, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they've got two questions. Number one is, when is this going to take place? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what are the signs that will precede all these things that will happen? And so he says in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Now, let me, let me just say, everything, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have time tonight to give you the various views of how these words can be interpreted, you know, uh, because there are people who have different views on this. But I'm going to share with you what my view is. If you have questions, you can talk to me after the service. Everything he says in chapter 13 deals with the tribulation period. So we're talking about a seven-year period of time that, from my point of view, begins with the rapture of the church, um, a period of time that has very particular signs that will precede it. It's not going to be, it's not just going to uh, all of a sudden happen without a a series of events, you know, that will be fulfilled that Jesus laid out very clearly. Um, As we see in this chapter, three and a half years into it, there's an event that's going to happen that the Antichrist will commit that's going to cause many people in Jerusalem to flee. It will all end in the second coming of Christ, verse 24 of chapter 13, and then at the end, you have two you have one parable uh, that really lays out the heart uh, of the person who's living during this time. These words oftentimes are just taken as blanket statements to Christians living at um, all periods of time historically, uh, but I'm not saying that it doesn't apply to us. But remember, from my point of view, we're dealing with when he talks about disciples during this time, we're talking about Jewish people who've put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You could you could call them messianic Jews, although there's, you know, that phrase is, is fraught with some issues that we need to kind of sort out. But we're talking about messianic Jews during the tribulation period. Um, this section of scripture is not about The rapture, verse 24 to 27, it's about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let me just, I'm just giving you kind of a heads up. What are the signs that will precede all these things? Well, he says in verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, number one, see that no one leads you astray. So it starts with um, an application. Man, you need to be on your toes spiritually. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. So, number one, he says, there's going to be deception that comes from the outside. There are going to be people who are false messiahs or false prophets. Planeo is the word for deception. It means to lead astray. There's going to be not only an attack on the truth, but there are going to be people that proclaim themselves to be the way of God, the, the way to God, excuse me. In fact, they're going to say that they're coming in his name. Now, that may mean that they're saying that they, in fact, are the Christ or that they are sent by Christ. And the reality is, they will also, and we know this is true of the false prophet and the Antichrist, they will also be given the authority to perform signs and wonders. Matthew 7, 21 says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And so they've leveraged the name of Jesus haven't we cast out demons in your name? They seemingly have exercised authority over spiritual darkness and done many wonders in your name. It would seem to be that there was authority even for these people to do miraculous signs. And the Bible says that Jesus will say to them, I will, ne- I, I, excuse me, I will declare I never knew you. I will declare I never knew you. Listen, now is the time for us to be Bereans in our faith. Now is a time for us to be, to be watchmen and watch, watch women who know the word of God and are able to point out those who are false prophets. You say, well, how can you tell a, a false prophet? How can you tell someone who is really a wolf in sheep's clothing? And the answer is, watch what they eat. Watch what they eat. Because if they're devouring Christians... Right? This, is, this is what a wolf in sheep's clothing will do. If they're devouring Christians, if they're on the prowl seeking to divide or destroy or to corrupt the church of God, then you know that you have a false prophet. 1 Timothy 4 one says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Um, We know, we see the legalization of lawlessness all around us today. Whether we're talking about the legalization of drugs or of same-sex marriage or sexual perversity or violence and racism, we see humans playing God. I was just reading the other day that scientists have created mice just from combining stem cells. And there are all of these ethical boundaries that are being crossed in the name of science, you know, or in the name of freedom, or in the name of us having a right to do something. And you know, where at one time that might have been out there, all of what's happening out there is starting to creep in here. There was a study recently done, uh, and it was shocking it, one of the things it said was this, 39% of evangelical pastors say there is no absolute moral truth and that each individual must determine their own truth. So like it's one thing for us and we, we can, I'll tell you, we're living in the days of Noah. We are living in the days of Noah. All the signs of the times are all around us, but there is also a corrupt, corruptness that's happening on the inside too when you have a 1,000 pastors that are being, you know, questioned. And one of the questions is, well, what's your position on absolute moral truth? And they say, well, you know what, Uh, really, you can make it up based on what you desire. You know, whatever feels good for you, there's really no such thing as absolute moral truth. You can see that that deception is beginning to enter into the church He talks about wars among nations, wars and rumors of wars. You guys, I'm sure, know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. There were 160 million people that were killed in wars. Nations will rise against nations. That whole concept was something really that was known in some sense historically, but nothing like what we saw in the 20th century, and it's not as if, wars ended in the 20th century, even today we are dealing with wars and rumors of wars and the threat of nuclear warfare. You know, where one time it may have seemed that with the end of the Cold War, the nuclear threat was over, maybe more than ever we see that the world is at risk of going to nuclear war. And it's not just that, he talks about earthquakes and famines and troubles um, of course, you know, I could give you all of the, the data. There was this uh, Associated Press article that was released in December of uh, 2010, and it said this. It was called Worlds Gone Wild, and it said earthquakes, heat waves, floods, volcanoes, super typhoons, blizzards, landslides, and droughts. Killed at least a quarter of a million people in 2010. And that's not even talking about 2020. That's not even talking about COVID and monkeypox and the various earthquakes we've seen and the hurricane that just happened in Florida. I'm just saying, you know, Jesus calls these things labor pains. If your wife is pregnant, the doctor has said to you, hey, listen, Bozo, it's up to you. Listen, Bozo, it's up to you to be able to tell the, the signs of the times. Like, you know, measure the contractions, measure the contractions, and when the contractions are, you know, and they give the details, it's like, grab the backpack with all the stuff in it, and head down here, and go through every red light that you need to. And, you know, it's like, you, you, you know, you're measuring contractions, and you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to make a trip, you know, too early, so you call the doctor, and the doctor's like, you idiot, like, can't you, can't you read the signs of the times? And, and I, just, I just, I'm not calling us idiots here tonight. I'm just saying, like, we don't want to be people who have our heads buried in the sand. You know, like, we, we need to be aware of what's happening around us. And all the signs are lining up. Verse 9, he says, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what, what you are to say. But... Say whatever, by the way, this is a great principle no matter what. Say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father is child. So we're talking about, we're talking about great persecution on believers in Jesus Christ. So much so that there will be a, a great Um, betrayal, even within the family, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for, you will be, no one talks about this promise, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, 2017, German Chancellor Angela Merkel declared Christianity the most persecuted religion in the world. The Huffington Post had an article the same year that said, we may not want to hear it, but Christianity is in peril like no other religion. Christians are targeted more than any other body of believers. 200 million Christians are socially disadvantaged, harassed, or actively oppressed for their beliefs. And from that time, the number has only increased. Verse 14, so now we've not only seen the signs that will precede the tribulation, but we're three and a half years into the tribulation. The Antichrist has risen. He's presented himself as a man of peace. He has great influence and sway over all of the worlds. He had the world divided in ten kingdoms, but now he has established himself as the false Messiah. According to Daniel chapter 9, he's, he is established... Uh, covenant relationship with Israel for seven years, now three and a half years in, he is going to commit the abomination of desolation. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. So we're talking about a localized place, Third temple that's built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, Uh, we're talking about the area of Judea, we're talking about Jews. And that the one who is in the field not turn back to take his clothes, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be." And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect." It'll be that significant of a deception. But be on guard, another application here. Be on guard, I have told you these things before him. So verses 14 to 20, just a synopsis, we're talking about that moment in time where the Antichrist, like I said, he goes into the rebuilt temple uh, where there is a reinstitution of all the sacrifices. By the way, all of the, All of the utensils that are used for worship in the temple have already been recreated. Like if you go, like I said, with me in March, you'll see the menorah that's going to be placed in the holy place. And so you have the brazen altar, you have Uh, the the wash basin, you have the table of showbread, you have the menorah, you have all of the clothes for the the priests that have already been made, the red heifer, they have the red heifer so they can sacrifice that, take the uh, ashes from the burnt offering, put it in the laver where the priests wash and cleanse themselves so that they're ritually clean. Well, there will be sacrifices that will be reinstituted Three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant with the nation of Israel, go into the most holy place, and demand that the Jewish people make sacrifices to him. He he is the abomination of desolation. The light spiritually will go on, and the Jewish people will recognize that they've made a covenant with the wrong individual. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that of course we know the Antichrist is possessed by Satan himself. He is going to persecute the Jewish people and uh, Christian Jews, Jews who put their trust and faith in Yeshua as Messiah. He's gonna persecute them like never before and he's going to pursue them all the way to a place of preservation which I believe is the Rock City Petra in modern day Jordan where God is going to preserve and keep those people for three and a half years. All of that will end. There's a lot that happens during that time, but all of that will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Somebody say amen to that. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. This is uh, gathering the people of God. Then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this, like I'm tying this back to what I said in in the beginning. Jacob's trouble... Time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the the great day of God's wrath, those final three and a half years, tribulation has been like reaching a climax. It's been a crescendo as far as the wrath of God falling on humanity. It all culminates with Christ coming, rescuing the people in Edom, going to the Valley of Jezreel, wiping out. The armies gathered there. The Bible says that he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet and he casts them into the lake of fire that's burning with brimstone. They're the first two people, first two beings to be cast into what we would call hell. And then he, like I said, goes to the top of the Mount of Olives, triumphal entry 2.0, comes to the top of the Temple Mount, and he judges the nations. This is prophetically... An exhortation to those who will be living during that time, but also an exhortation to us, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So there are certain things that happen with the fig tree that indicate the changing of seasons. Summer's present. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but, say it with me, okay? But my words will not pass away. Jesus is simply saying this. Once these events start to happen, there's no stopping them. There's no stopping them. They're like dominoes that fall. You hit the first one and everything, you know, subsequently falls into place. He says the generation, this generation, this uh, genea, the people living during a particular time will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now the question is, what generation are we talking about? Um, Are we talking about the existing generation that was during Jesus' time? Well, that certainly can't be the case because the abomination of desolation never happened. And there are all of these events That did not happen even at 70 AD. So even though the preterist would say that all of this is historical and connected to 70 AD, we know that that simply cannot be the case. That's not the generation. Is it the nation of Israel? Because we talked about how the nation of Israel is likened to an olive tree, a vineyard, and a fig tree. And so maybe we're just talking about the nation of of Israel not passing away. And then on the other hand, some would say, well, no, we're talking about the generation that's present that is seeing all these things come to pass. That particular generation, as these dominoes are falling in place, that generation will not pass away until all of that has collectively taken place. And I think my, my view is that's the generation that we're talking about, the generation that sees all of these birth pains, labor pains begin to happen. That period of time that, you know, is called the generation, all of these things that he's talked about are going to happen before that generation passes. And my personal opinion is we are that generation. Um, if you want something to hang your hat on and trust in, let me just say it based on verse 31, it's his word. Verse 32, we'll wrap this up. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Man, this is such good counsel. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, he's saying spiritually, Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. I say to all, right? I say to all. He says this to us tonight. Stay awake. Stay spiritually awake. You know, there are a lot of Christians. Thank you for your patience tonight. But there are, let me just wrap up by saying this. There are a lot of Christians who are sleeping you know, just to sleep. Like, I want you to think about it like this. What if, what if tonight was the night that Jesus came back for his people? What if tonight was the night of the rapture? Would, would you be, what would you change? Let me just present it like that. What would you change? What would you clean up? What would you get in order? What would be like, oh man, you know, like when your parents left and you threw a rager? You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, they just showed up. They came home early because they knew you were up to no good. And, and, and maybe you got the text message that they were coming, and you kicked everyone out of your house. You hid the keg. You cleaned up everything that you could. You sprayed, you know, the, the whatever so that the smell of whatever was covered up. Like you got the house in order because mom and dad were coming home. Well, what if, what if tonight was the night? Would you just be so in a place where it's like, man, you're, you're wa- I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but you're just walking with him and you're in love with him. And it's like, man, I've got that anticipation. I'm good, I'm good. And you say, well, I don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, so it doesn't apply to me. I say to you, what if you die tonight? What if, what if you're driving home? I'm not speaking this word over your life, okay? <laughs> But what if you're driving home, you know? I mean, we forget the brevity of life. And what if tonight, these are the final breaths that you have, and, and you knew it? What if God's like, hey, I've got a prophetic word for you. You're gonna see me tonight. Like, what, what, would, what would you clean up? What would I clean up? You know, I'm just saying, when he says stay awake, this is what he's talking about, living in a place where you are ready to see him face to face, ready to see him face to face. And listen, if if we keep that in mind, because there's great anticipation. I'm not. I'm not. He's not frowning on me. He's not frowning on me because I, I've got. I've got the son, right? You've got the son. He takes great pleasure in you. But let's make sure we're living in such a way that our life is real worship, it's real love, it's real authentic, authenticity, and we're living in reality. Amen? Yeah, and Father, we give you praise tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. And, and God, in this moment, help us to just address it, to deal with it, God, to align it, to align it to you. And tonight, as we're wrapping up in this moment, I just, it would be wrong to just... Um, say, God bless you, go in peace. I mean, that's a good thing to say, but tonight, maybe there's something that needs to, maybe there's something that needs to be confessed. Maybe there's a burden that you need to unload. Maybe tonight you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You're like, man, I'm not ready to see God. And you, you know, you can be ready, not by making yourself a holy, moral, righteous person, because there's no, there's no religious institution that can do that in your life. You need Jesus. You need the one who is greater. You need the son of David. You need the Messiah. And tonight, you need to put your trust and faith in him. And you know, when you do that, you're washed from your sin Remember, this is the one thing that we all have in common. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor, how educated or uneducated, how privileged or how underprivileged, we all have sin that needs to be forgiven. And tonight, he offers that forgiveness freely. And so this evening, maybe this is you. Tonight, if you need to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I want to pray for you tonight. Would you raise your hand? Just stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I see your hand, and I see your hand right here in the center. Tonight, maybe, you know, even as a Christian, there's some unloading, some unburdening that... There's some aligning tonight, something that's off that needs to, that just needs to be addressed. And tonight you want to give that to God. Would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for how real you're willing to be. God always honors that. He always honors it. Thank you. Father, thank you so much, God, for these tonight whose hearts are leaning into you. And and Father, we pray that you'd bless them. We pray you'd speak to them. We pray that you would relieve them from that burden. Tonight, I want to lead you guys in prayer right where you're sitting and just a very simple prayer of confession and repentance, a prayer of faith in Jesus and receiving what God has for you through him. So right where you're sitting, I want you to follow me in this prayer. God, thank you that you have spoken to me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you for your son. Tonight I bring to you my sin. And I pray that through Jesus, you would forgive me and cleanse me, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would be the only one that I worship with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.